This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Ron, uh, I'm in Canton for the contributors' vote. I know you're in the studio. I know producer Dave Raskin's in the studio. But where's Goose? I mean, where is he? Migrating south? I don't hear about him. I don't see him. I don't know where he is. Where is he? The goose man has flown the goose, flown the coop. Who knows? He's in Detroit in August. You and I, we go to the beach. Goose man he gets his tires rotated in Motown and thinks it's a vacation. <laughs> well, you saw him last. It was last week in Canton where you, he, and the senior subcommittee did a, I thought, a bang-up job. Bringing out safety Johnny Robinson, who, as our listeners should know, was our choice a week earlier for one senior candidate spot for the class of 2019. Great job. Really good uh, job. Thanks. We're happy about it. Uh, certainly, he's he's one of the most deserving guys uh, not in the hall uh, now that Jerry Kramer went in this year. Uh, but, look, the fact is there were 23 names on that list. 14 of them were all-decade players. So you leave the room at the end of the day feeling good for Johnny Robbins, but badly for all those guys you left behind because, you know, most of them belong, uh, and, and they're probably not going to get in. It's a daunting and sometimes sad task, but we certainly were happy for Johnny, who was elated. Yeah, right. Well, I know passionate goose was about that choice. You know what? Maybe he just passed out when the announcement was made and then found himself on a plane from Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, he didn't stay in Canton, but actually, I did. Or actually, Cleveland, <laughs> courtesy of United oh. Airlines. Uh, but they <laughs> Congratulations. Did manage, yeah, they did manage, though, Clark, to do an all-time first in 45 years of traveling the world. They managed to lose my luggage without the flight ever leaving the tarmac. Hard to do. <laughs> I I guess they're make, not making your Hall of Fame, right? <laughs> no, they're not. Hall of Shame. Okay, well. Anyway, Goose is not with us today. I'm in Canton, and in celebration of Johnny Robinson's nomination, we have a former Chiefs defensive line coach, Tom Pratt, with us, as well as Hall of Fame voter Dan Pompey, who has just written a biography on Eagles coach Doug Peterson, and NFL historian John Turney, Pro Football Journal, to give us some outside perspective on the senior and contributor candidates. And, Ron, as you remember, we had Sal Palantoni on last week to talk about his book on the Super Bowl Eagles. Now we'll listen right. to Dan talk about his book. I'm the coach of the Super Bowl Eagles. So which one are you picking up in the store first? I buy them both because uh, if I know anyone, he or she, who goes to the trouble of writing a book, uh, I plunk down my cold, hard debit card and buy it. And they sound like two great things. Good. good for you. I thought you'd say you wait for the publisher and mail them to you. Proud of you, Ron. Those days well, are lots over. To get to t- <laughs> lots to get to today, including this week's vote on two contributor candidates for the class of 2019. All that will be coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, Ron, I was in a local grocery store the other day, and for getting ready to check out, my wife says, will you get a load of that? And I looked to my left, and there's a Halloween setup. They've got candy, they've got the ghosts, the goblins, the witches hats, everything. In the middle of August. I mean, we're over two months away, and they're pushing Halloween. What yeah. the heck is up with that? That's the Internet world we live in. Everything's about tomorrow. Nothing uh, nothing that happened today is already yesterday. You know, it's amazing. Uh, if you want a beach chair, you can't find one in any store in America. But if you want an Iron Man costume, they got plenty of them hanging on the rack. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm surprised Santa Claus wasn't waiting for you at the door. 
<laughs> well, that leads me to my next question. You know, when do the Christmas decorations start coming out? Except we were in Six Flags, New England over the weekend to celebrate my daughter's birthday. And we looked behind one of these rides, and they're getting some wreaths ready for, I would guess, September. I don't know. But it's a true story. They're getting wreaths out. God almighty. I tell you, you know, retailers, they just love to jump the shark and jump, you know, jump ahead, get in all these seasons. Then they complain when it's actually the season and nobody's in the store. You dopes, it's because we already <laughs> bought the stuff at a discount. That's right, because we were celebrating Christmas in September. Well, I guess then, because I'm, in, because I'm in Canton, um, it's not too early to ask. How soon should we start getting a gold jacket ready for Denver owner Pat Bowen? I mean, we have that contributor meeting in Canton, right here in Canton, this Thursday. And uh, I'm here for the vote. And Pat is expected to be one of the two nominees. We have two nominees. Pat was a high finisher the last couple of years. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, Rod, I'd, I'd be shocked if he weren't one of the two. How about you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I know what you're saying, and you've sort of uh, uh, convinced me that's the case. Frankly, I'm, sh- I'm shocked that he is. But look, he's a nice man. He made a lot of money in the oil business. I think it was. Uh, uh, they all make money in the oil business. Um, but look, the guy bought a team with a quarterback named Elway already in, under contract and in place and took him 25 years to win a championship. I mean, how the hell does that make you a Hall of Fame worthy? I, I don't get it. Enlighten me, as I'm sure you will. Yeah, um, well, I think he's got a sustained record of success with that franchise. Um, obviously, as you're right, John Elway was first the quarterback, then the GM of Brian and Peyton Manning. But he's also on a number of league committees, and that in and of itself doesn't qualify him as a contributor candidate, but he made a significant impact, as did Jerry Jones with that broadcast committee. In 1993, he got NFL connected with, uh, reconnected with NBC, brought in Fox, then did 2006, uh, had something to do with a labor deal, had something to do with the uh, franchise tag, uh, and NFL Network uh, has been involved with NFL Europe in the past. So he's, he's, he's got his hands in a lot of things, and I think he's covered his bases with success and longevity on one side on the football field and then involvement with league issues on the other. Yeah, no, I, I guess so, but it's just uh, uh, when, I, when I hear about that TV deal, more guys have taken credit for that TV deal than took credit for the yep. D-Day invasion yep. plans. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, you know, it's somebody else as soon as the last, last guy gets enshrined in something, you know. Uh, all I know is when it was in the thick of it, uh, his name is seldom one that I heard mentioned all the time in the midst of these negotiations. Uh, but... Look, you know, I'm not on a committee. I'm sure you guys are going to do a great job. I'm just a little baffled by how uh, Bolin came out of nowhere a couple of years ago. Uh, I didn't hear anybody talking about him for the Hall of Fame, and now, boom, he's in on roller skates. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in all honesty, I do think there's um, a, a little bit of a, a sympathy segment to this. I mean, he's suffering from Alzheimer's and pretty significantly, and I think people would like to get him in before he passes away. And I think you'd appreciate that, you know, having uh, been involved with the Ken Stabler talk about getting him in the Hall of Fame, and unfortunately we get him in after he's gone. So I think there's a feeling that we should fast forward Pat Bolin while we can, while he's still alive, and, and maybe he can't appreciate it, but his family can. Yeah, no, I mean, I understand, uh, you know, if in fact you think he's Hall of Fame worthy, but, you know, I, I don't feel that well myself, Clark, so you could pass that around in the room. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to the voters, 
guess what? You just made it to the top list of the list. You're in the top five. You're funny. <laughs> I got a cough right now. Excuse me. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I mentioned uh, his involvement and in talking about Pat's involvement with um, the NFL through committees, especially the broadcast committee, his longevity uh, with success. I mean, they, that, that franchise has been very successful since the uh, mid to late 80s when John Elway was the quarterback. Uh, they won two Super Bowls in the late 90s, uh, and they've had a sustained record of success uh, on the field, and he's had a sustained record of success off the field uh, with league issues. But, Ron, it seems to me you can make similar arguments for your owner, and that's Robert Kraft, couldn't you? I mean, sure. he was active in league matters. Um, and then, you know, that 2011 CBA, remember when that was finalized, and the players, and I think of, I think Jeff Saturday was one of them, uh, actually named him, not Roger Goodell, another owner, as the key figure in bringing about peace. I mean, that sounds to me like a league man. No, you're right. I mean, they uh, avoided the uh, lockout, according to uh, uh, Foxworthy and a lot of the players that were involved. It wasn't uh, just Saturday that, uh, you know, Kraft uh, really was the guy who said, get the lawyers out of the room and, and let's work together and, and, and figure yeah. this out. You know, so uh, you, you got to give him that. I know he was, I know, uh, centrally involved in uh, a lot of uh, the uh, TV contracts. He's been a supporter of Goodell even after Goodell uh, uh, screwed him. Uh, you know, he still uh, backed him, you know, um, which isn't easy to do. And certainly uh, he didn't take the Jerry Jones road and, and uh, uh, threaten to sue anybody. So, And his team has had much more, more sustained success, frankly, than the Broncos had. Um, oh, no, that's right. He's that most, is absolutely right. He's really the most successful yeah. owner since Carol Rosenblum uh, in terms of winning percentage and all that. And with championships, Eddie DeBarlow in the, in the 49ers. So, yeah. yeah, I think you can make a strong case for him if putting owners in the Hall of Fame is your cup of tea. Yeah, well, um, it may be. <laughs> it <just laughs> yeah, well, I think it certainly could um, be. Hey, Ron, quickly, let me put you on the spot here. If you could bring out two candidates this week, your two candidates, who would they be? I mean, I know you're not on the committee, but I'm just wondering, right. who would your two candidates be for the contributor category in the Hall's Class of 2019? Uh, mine would be Bucko Kilroy, who is, to me is the essence of what a co- uh, contributor is, and Bill Nunn, the great black scout uh, from the Steelers, uh, who had much to do with building that Steel Curtain team. And if you and if you think not, you'll go listen or go look back and see what Art and Dan Rooney said about Bill Nunn and, and why they hired him in the first place uh you know he uh opened the doors up for them when afl was dominating historically black colleges uh and that's where they they got a lot of those great players who uh, drove them in the 70s when they had a great team Speaking of opening up the doors, I hear that sound. I think either A, we're going to see Sam Watterson walking through the door, or B, we're going to hear another state your case for the Hall of Fame worthy candidate with Ron Borges making the case in just a hunch. But I don't think it's Sam coming through the door. Ron, you're on. <laughs> well, there are 10 members of the 1930 NFL All Decade team not enshrined in Canton. Seven are linemen. The best of them, most football historians would agree, was Ox Emerson aptly named. Uh, Emerson played eight seasons in the NFL between 1931 and 1939 and was named first-team All-Pro six times. That's 75% of the time, which today would make you a millionaire, but not so in the 30s. His career began in 1931 with the Portsmouth Spartans, who would later become the Detroit Lions. Ox Emerson was paid $75 a game to come north from Texas and turn pro. Eight years and six All-Pro seasons later, his salary was $150 a game. No wonder the guy retired when he was 30. 
Emerson was one of the most mobile guards of his time, and the anchor of an offensive line that produced the biggest rushing yards in league history. In 1936, the Lions' third year of existence after the Spartans uh, were sold and moved to Detroit, Emerson led a pile-driving line that produced 2,885 rushing yards in 12 games. That record stood for 36 years before the uh, undefeated 72 Dolphins broke it in a 14-game season. A year earlier, four of the league's top ten rushes found daylight running behind Ox Emerson as the Lions won their first NFL championship over the Giants. 26-7. to seven. Uh, In 1932, his second season, he was still with the Spartans, and they finished tied with the Chicago Bears for the best record and thus produced one of the great oddities in NFL history. They met on December 16th in the NFL's first playoff game, and it was played in frigid conditions so bad that they had to go indoors at Chicago Stadium only days after the circus left. Still on the floor was four inches of dirt plus a mix of elephant and lion poop. What stunk most for Ox Emerson, though, was the absence of Dutch Clark, who, because of the economics of the game, refused to play because it was an extra game and he was afraid he was going to lose his basketball coaching job at Colorado College. They should have won the game, but they ended up losing it late in the fourth quarter. Ox Emerson, uh, was uh, th- that was the first of his six consecutive All-Pro seasons. He put To put that in perspective, it's the same number as Barry Sanders had. And it also ties Ox with Hall of Famers Jack Christensen, Luke Kriegmeier, and his old teammate Dutch Clark with the Lions. Without a doubt, Ox Emerson is one of the great forgotten players of the 30s. It's time the Hall of Fame remembered him. Ron, how do you get his name Ox? Because <laughs> uh, somebody we'll said he was dumb as an thing. Ox when he was in high school. True story. <laughs> hey, thanks, Ronnie, and good luck getting him into the room. We're going to go to commercial now, and when we return, we'll revisit the vote that last week put Johnny Robinson one step closer to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Ron, I see where Adrian Peterson, who one day I would guess will be in the Hall of Fame, uh, which, by the way, I'm standing outside of. I'm here in Canton, but um, Go inside. I'm pretty close to we going. Yeah, Go inside well, where the we, AC uh, is. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty nice. It's a great place. I mean, I love being in. I love being in the Hall of Fame, and we've got a contributors meeting this week, so that's why I'm here in Canton. But um, I would think Adrian Peterson one of these days is going to be inside this building, um, Ron. And, and um, in the meantime, before he gets here, uh, he's going to continue with his NFL career. And he just signed, as most people know, with the Washington Redskins, albeit for the minimum. And I don't think Ron that tells me as much about Adrian Peterson as it does. The Washington Redskins. I mean, the guy's 33. Over the last two seasons, he averaged 3.1 yards a carry, or the third fewest among running backs with 150 or more carries during that time. So um, that tells me one thing, Ron. It tells me the Redskins are thin, and they mean twiggy thin, and they are desperate. Yeah, I agree with that. It also tells me they're doing what they've done so many times in the recent past, which is live in the past. Adrian Peterson is not the answer to any questions that relate to playing football or running the football in 2018. Uh, Injuries and his own actions combined to slam the window on him uh, a couple years ago now. And look, that's far from unusual. Most backs uh, last less than four years, and the great ones are very, very lucky to get anywhere near 10. So, uh, you know, it's sad. It's sad sad to see in a lot of ways. Uh, What's sad to me is to see that he's heading in the same direction as Emmett Smith in Arizona and OJ in San Francisco, limping along and getting their block knocked off. And I think the Redskins will uh, really ask themselves why they did this before too long. Yeah, and I understand, and so do you, what they're trying to do. They, they need depth. I mean, they need right. some depth there because they just lost rookie running back Darius Geis for the season. But 
Remember when Peterson had to split the position in New Orleans? He had to, he leaves Minnesota, goes to New Orleans, and he says, yeah. oh, I, I'm fine I'm fine with it. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. But he didn't last very long there. It was like a half a season because he was unproductive and he was unhappy. Right. You think that's going to change? Because I don't. No, I don't. I mean, I think he still sees himself, like most great players, as something that he's not. I mean, he believes he can still run to daylight. Unfortunately, by the time he sees the daylight these days, it's nighttime. Time for a nap. Uh, and, and you're right. You know, ego plays into these things a lot of times, and he doesn't seem to be a guy willing to work in a backup role or even a shared role. Uh, so I see trouble brewing here in Washington, which is what they're most known for, trouble. Yeah, well, and, and you know, just to follow up on what you were talking about earlier about, um, you know, Emmett um, and others, I mean, every time I see something like this with a once-great player, it, it really it's sad because it reminds me of, like, Willie Mays uh, trying to hang on with the Mets when he couldn't hit 200, Unitas with the Chargers, uh, Jerry Rice in Seattle or Denver didn't make any difference. Um, it's just tough to call it quits. I remember walking with Walsh one time, and he was talking about Jerry Rice. He said, you think it's tough to have Steve Young, you know, sit down? It's going to be even tougher with Jerry. It's just so difficult to know when it's time to go. But, you know, as Chuck Noll once said, you've got to get on with life's work, and you've got to know it. And, and you know, Adrian Peterson, no offense, but I, I think it's that time. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, look, Chuck Noll didn't know when it was time to go either. Uh, you know, most of the time... Yeah, that's true. That's yeah, true. you know, it's just how it is. And I think most of the time the player is the last guy to see it. And with the money and the adulation and the sort of insulation that they now have around themselves, I think it's even tougher to give up. Uh, and I also think this, Clark, when you've relied on your body... Uh, uh, and it's never let you down uh, from the first time yep. you picked up a ball. Uh, I think it can blind you to the fact that it's not reacting anymore quickly enough the way it once did. I remember Andre Tippett telling me a story one time about tackling Earl Campbell and how fired up he was to tackle Earl Campbell. And uh, it, Earl was at the end of his career. And, and Tip said, you know, the first time he tackled, he said he just went down. And he said that he was young, and, and Tip was young, and he was completely shocked. And he came back to the huddle, and some of his older teammates said, what are you doing? Because he blasted him pretty good. He said, that's Earl Campbell. And one of his teammates looked at him and said, that's not Earl Campbell. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, that's the um, thing. Okay. Well, um, you and Goose, who, by the way, is not with us today. So he's in Michigan, I think. He's in Michigan. Doing, doing what, Ron? Did you say pumping the tires? What's he doing? <laughs> I think he's rotating uh, his tires. Motown. Bro. Rotating the tires. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I thought he was migrating south. The Goose man migrating. Anyway, um, he and you were in Canton last week for the senior committee meeting. We've talked about that on the show here. And you merged with former chief safety, as we've mentioned, Johnny Robinson, as the choice for the class of 2019, the senior choice for the class of 2019. And, Ron... As I said before, hallelujah. I mean, it's about time the guy took a step forward. And, and congratulations to you and the committee for correcting what I thought was a major, and I mean major, oversight in leaving Johnny Robinson out of Canton for all these years. Well, thanks, uh, Clark. You know, look, it was a tough day. Uh, the cut down to f- from 23 to 15 and then 10 and then 5 and finally the 3, it was brutal. It took seven or eight ballots uh, to get to, get down to the last three, you know. Uh, we didn't make mm-hmm. uh, 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 any of those cut downs without having to vote twice. And it's, I think it says a lot about the depth of the pool. It's the great abyss, as you've heard me call the senior pool before. Look, there's 66 all-decade players in the great abyss. Uh, you, know, you pick one of those guys out and tell the other 65, go take a dip. You know, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's hard to swallow, but it's, it's the job. I thought you were talking about my resume when you said the great abyss. That's, that's, that's what you call my resume. <laughs> I call that the thin gruel. <laughs> okay, well, Ron, let's start at the beginning. You mentioned the 23 names on the ballot. You did have 23. 
how did you get through them, and, and who were your consultants? I know you have two people in that room who are consultants, and right. you can ask questions to, and they, but, but how did you get through 23 names? Well, it was hard, but uh, this year the consultants were Ron Wolf and, and Dave Robinson, and, and uh, they both were very helpful because they were very candid. You know, a lot of times you get guys in, they don't really want to say anything bad about somebody, at least not too bad. Everybody's a three. You know, and, uh, but especially if they're Packers with Wolf. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. But they were they were they were good. You know, they they guys they didn't think belonged in the Hall of Fame. They said so, and I think that really helped us. Um, but it was pretty methodical. You know, we everyone was well prepared. You know, we discussed each guy's credentials, raised some issues, um, did some comparisons either with other guys in the book or guys already in the hall, and try to kind of sort them out that way. But uh, look, in, in the end. We could have picked, uh, you know, half the list could have easily gone in uh, and Johnny Robinson not. So, and no one could have really yelled too loud about it. Yeah, I've never been in a room with Dave Robinson, but I have been in one with uh, Ron Wolf as a consultant. He's terrific. Um, He's so knowledgeable and he's unbiased and he'll be very direct as to this is what I like about him. This is what I don't. And and I'm wondering in in this room here, when you've got those two and, and 23 names, how difficult were those cutdowns? Because you'd mentioned them before, and you said twenty-three to fifteen, but then I thought someone said eighteen, and then twelve right. instead of ten. I mean, you, you had to juggle the, the numbers. How difficult were those cutdowns? Well, really hard, you know, because you 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 know, right from the start, you knew you were leaving behind legitimate Hall of Famers, at least people that, that yeah. we believe are legitimate Hall of Famers. There was nobody on that list where you just immediately dismissed them as, uh, as how would this guy get on the list? Uh, and and obviously, as the list got sh- uh, shorter, the it took longer to vote because it was just harder and harder to... You sit there and you're looking at a name and saying, am I really not voting for this guy? Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, if, yeah. I do, if I vote for him, then I'm really not going to vote for that guy? And so that that's what it became. And uh, It was an interesting day, to say the least. Well, Ron, going in that that morning, how confident were you that you were going to merge with Johnny Robinson as your nominee? I wasn't terribly confident, only because again, uh, uh, he didn't make the final three last year. Uh, I don't believe. Right. Uh, and you know, as Earl Weaver used to tell me when I covered baseball in Baltimore, uh, there's some deep depth there, and uh, that was, you know, so you, you you just weren't sure. You know, even at three, I wasn't totally convinced that uh, uh, because there were compelling cases uh, for the other two uh, uh, finalists. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I thought he had a good chance, and I knew he had built up steam, and I think, frankly, uh, uh, Talk of Fame Network helped build up some of that steam over the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree. Jimmy Robinson. Yeah. Having said all that, uh, it's five guys, it's five different opinions, uh, and, you know, it's not that easy to uh, get everybody behind one candidate uh, because everybody likes, you know, this guy over that guy, or they think this team hasn't really had anybody out there in a long time, and this team's had a number yeah. of guys. So you never know what's going to happen. And, and in Johnny's case, uh, you know, there's always the possibility that people look and say, well, geez, they already got five guys in on that defense. Yeah, you know, that's right. You know, right. And, and fortunately, uh, uh, we didn't do that. Well, because of uh, the number of uh, voters there who are camping either one guy or two guys or whatever, and, and the number of candidates you have to sift through, how contentious was the debate? I wouldn't call it really contentious at all. I, I think there was uh, uh, the most contentious exchange of the whole was pretty funny, actually. It was between Dave and, and Ron Wolf. Dave, Dave was kind of going on about the early years of the AFL and basically had to say how they all stunk, you know. And, and the Chiefs had great players, but everybody else's team stunk, you know. And uh, you could see Ron over there, who had been with the Raiders all those years, starting to uh, grumble a little bit. And finally goes, 
Hey, geez, I thought we were two and two at the Super Bowl. Did I miss something? <laughs> that was great. It was hilarious, you know. Uh, but really, not. I didn't sense any contentions. There has been sometimes in the past, but I, uh, I think everyone knew how how deep the list was, and that you couldn't come up with a bad candidate. Ron, was there any compelling comment you can remember, um, either by the group or the consultants, that in your mind clinched it for Johnny Robinson? I don't think there was any one thing. I mean, uh, the one thing that uh, that I think struck a lot of people was uh, he's 13th all-time in interceptions, uh, and he retired nearly 50 years ago. You know, <laughs> that's a lot of guys have had a lot of opportunities to catch Johnny Robinson and couldn't do it. Uh, so I think that opened up some people's uh, uh, eyes. You know, and Dave played against him, of course, in uh, in Super Bowl one, uh, and knew him a bit, and uh, certainly spoke. Uh, to his abilities as a player, and uh, I, th- I think you tend to really take to heart uh, an opposing player who's played against the guy. Hey, Ron, we've got about 30 seconds here, but I heard Rick say in his 15 years on that subcommittee, he thought it was the best discussion he's been through. You agree? Yeah, I think so, because no one was really pushing an individual candidate. Uh, uh, we were really more trying to debate each guy fairly. Uh, uh, we uh, offered Rick and I uh, some perspective from all the research we've done at Talk of Fame Network here on guys with our state your cases, mm-hmm. and I think that helped. I mean, one thing I was happy about was you know Ed Sprinkle and, and Duke Slater uh, both went deep into the voting, you know, and I think that that wouldn't have happened a few years ago. So it tells me that the voters are looking deeper. Well, thanks for the insight, Ron. Again, congratulations on a long overdue choice. And speaking of that choice, we'll talk more about Johnny Robinson with someone who knew him and knew him well when we return. This is the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Tom Pratt has been around the NFL for decades, which is why we're delighted he agreed to come around to talk with us today about Hall of Fame nominee Johnny Robinson. Now, if Tom's name sounds familiar, it should. At 82, he coached the Arizona Cardinals pass rushers last season, making him the last active coach in the NFL have also coached the American Football League, which is where he worked with the Chief Johnny Robinson, one of the anchors of an elite defense. Now, Tom coached Kansas City's defensive line from 1963 through 1977, which included appearances in Super Bowls 1 and 4, the second of which the Chiefs dominated in a 23-7 defeat of Minnesota in the final Super Bowl before the NFL-AFL merger. Tom went on to coach defensive lines in New Orleans, Cleveland, Tampa, twice more with the Chiefs, and finally Arizona the past five years. And he's also the only coach to won both the NFL Super Bowl and Japan's, where he coached the Asahi Challengers in 2000 in Osaka. Now he's here to educate us on a safety that the Pro Football Hall of Fame almost forgot. And Tom Pratt, can't wait to hear what you have to say about him. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. Nice to be here. Well, Tom, uh, Johnny Robinson started as a running back his first two years in the AFL, uh, and he was top five in total yards as a rookie runner in 1960. Uh, I think by the time you arrived in 63, he was a starting safety, however. Did you ever wonder why they shifted him? Well, you know, that probably all came about not from anything that Johnny did or didn't do because uh, Abner Haynes was uh, also uh, an outstanding running back at that time. And Abner uh, probably, uh, uh, you know, took a step above uh, Johnny there. 
And uh, one thing that Johnny did, he was such a great receiver out of the backfield. You know, in those days, you played with two backs. So we had a fullback type, uh, blocker type, and then, of course, the uh, uh, the receiver runner type, which was uh, Johnny and, and Abner. Of course, Johnny came off the national championship uh, team there at LSU uh, the year before he was drafted by the uh, uh, by the uh, uh, Texans at that time. Dallas Texans became the Chiefs. Tom, was that, was that uh, Paul Diesel's Chinese Bandits defense that he was on? That was Paul Diesel's Chinese Bandits, yep. And Johnny was a great player on that team, uh, along with Billy Cannon. And uh, uh, that, that, was, that was one of the historic teams at that time. And, of course, uh, I was coaching in college, so uh, I knew a whole lot about uh, uh, Johnny Robinson as a, as a player. So it was great to uh, be able to uh, reattach uh, with him uh, or to attach with him uh, in 1963. Well, Tom, as you know, um, Johnny waited over 40 years, I think 47 to be exact, to get to the doorstep of the Hall of Fame. And I've got a two-part question for you. Uh, A, what did the voters miss about him for, I guess, four decades or longer? And and B, do you think he was a victim of prejudice versus AFL stars? Because some people do. Well, uh, the the first part, I think, uh, uh, you know, we kind of had a theory about that, uh, that there were so many chiefs that were inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, ahead of Johnny, you know, and uh, so many on on defense, you know, Buchanan and Culp and Lanier and Bell and and Thomas. And, you know, we kind of thought, well, maybe, you know, they'll put it off for a year or so and then then, uh, let Johnny in. But, you know, as far as uh, prejudice is concerned, uh, I don't know. I, I I don't have any uh, real feel about that. Uh, that's certainly up to the uh, uh, the uh, uh, committees and uh, uh, the induction part of it. But I, I do know one thing: that Johnny was totally qualified to be in a gold jacket uh, uh, long before uh, at this time. You know, back when he was a player, he was certainly deserving of it. Well, as you know, Tom, uh, Johnny had 57 interceptions. He led the AFL in picks in 1966, the, the NFL in 1970. He was a seven-time All-Pro. Yet some of his critics claimed he played too deep. He wasn't active enough in run support, which is just ludicrous. Uh, but I'm just wondering, how would you counter that argument for, by those people who would make that? Well, the one thing, you know, we, we start comparing some of the other players and uh, to Johnny. And, uh, you know, Paul Krause is the, the leader in interceptions and was a great, great player and considered one of the best zone players of all time. And he uh, had 81 interceptions in 16 seasons, whereas Johnny had 57 in essentially 10, uh, 10 years of eight years because uh, he didn't play defense until uh, 62 is when he started. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I think Johnny was, uh, uh, certainly uh, qualified in every respect from that standpoint. Now, as far as playing too deep, we were playing zone. So he's he's back playing the deep middle. But there was nobody tougher than Johnny Robinson. And uh, I, I'll relay a story to you uh, uh, in a few minutes here about uh, about his toughness. But this guy, uh, this guy knew how to play the game and did play the game. I just as soon hear that that story about his toughness right now, Tom. Do you have it? Okay, I'll 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 go through that. Uh, we were we we're playing Oakland in the playoff game, uh, and this is the playoff game to uh, qualify for the Super Bowl. We're in the fourth quarter, and. All of a sudden, in the fourth quarter, it becomes a fumble and interception. So, uh, so we uh, 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 we end up with three giveaways, and now we get three takeaways. But during that time, Johnny went for an interception, 
and laid out completely and caught the ball at its highest point, but he was he was out of bounds. And when he was out of bounds, the official on the sideline froze, and Johnny came down on his head, and and just uh, I don't know whether he, I don't know how many ribs he broke, but I mean it was a it was a real severe injury for Johnny. Now, next week, because we went on to win the game, uh, Johnny's playing the Super Bowl. We say hey, uh, he probably won't play. You know, he's got these ribs and the whole thing. Johnny says, "Hey, I'm playing. It didn't matter. I mean they." wrapped him up in every piece of tape they had and, uh, uh, you know, gave him as many aspirins as he could take. And he played in the game, recovered a fumble in the Super Bowl, just was a great player. That was one of the toughest acts by a player, I think, that I've ever been associated with in all the years that I coached. Well, you know, Tom, he played with three broken ribs and also in that Super Bowl. I think he had an interception as well as the fumble recovery. Yeah, um, I know so you're right. It, it was a memorable game. I want to ask you about the, the first Super Bowl, which going back to the 66 playoffs, when you were the first AFL team to play in it. And you, favored, you played fa- uh, favored Green Bay, who was the heavily favored Green Bay Packers. Um, and I'm wondering, were, were the, we know what happened in that game, and you played tough for one half, and then all of a sudden the, the bottom fell off a second. But were the Packers that much better? And, and how overwhelming was it to face Lombardi's team? Here you are in the other league, and you're now facing a team that's won numerous NFL championships and got the great Vince Lombardi as a head coach. Well, you know, it was a mystery to us as far as, the, you know, the, the history of uh, the Packers and everything. And, and the one thing about it, there's, there's no, uh, no question about it. The Packers had a, a great team, great personnel, and, and all of that. Now, when you stop and consider that uh, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs at that point just started in a brand-new league in 1960, and the Chiefs went in and won the AFC championship in 62. Of course, there was no Super Bowl. And then we came back and won the uh, uh, 66, uh, or got in the 66 uh, and went, won the championship. And then, of course, that earned us the right to uh, play in the Super Bowl. But, you know, we went in the game, and uh, I don't think uh, to a man that uh, that we thought that uh, that we would ever do anything but win the game. I mean, that's, that's what football players do. And I think... Uh, the, the, the leadership we had on that team was great, but you know that the, the experience level was not quite there yet. Our our real Buchanan and Buddy and and those guys were rookies in uh, in '62. They were '63. Excuse me, that was the first year for them. So I mean, here we're playing against guys that have been playing for uh, you know ten, eight ten years. So uh, yeah, there was a you know I think there was a personnel a difference there, and, and uh, uh, some of that uh, did show up in the game. But I don't think we were intimidated by it. It was just that, hey, they end up with more points at the end than we did. And, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, it hurt us. I just, I'll just give you a quick thing after that, though. We, we came back the next year in, in uh, training camp, and the Bears were the first team that we played, uh, you know, uh, against the NFL because that was the first year we could play uh, preseason games. So we played the Bears, and all that uh, anxiety, all that uh, 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 hard feeling had built up in our team, and we ended up we beat the Bears sixty-six to thirteen, I think it was in that preseason game. So uh, uh, we, we took it all out on them for uh, Green Bay pounding on us. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, three years later, uh, you were back in the Super Bowl again. You were heavy underdogs against the Vikings in Super Bowl four, but your defense uh, was only the fourth in history to lead the league in fewest rushing yards, passing yards, total yards, scoring, turnovers, interceptions, and six other categories. Uh, how important was Johnny Robinson to how that triple stack defense performed that year, and and why? 
Well, he was, uh, you know, he was really uh, uh, one of the, the top leaders on that team. And, and then when you stop and think about it, and, and, and we're going to get Johnny in, in the hall, that's six defensive players on that team. And I, I, don't, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, how you win Super Bowls without that kind of uh, personnel. But we had it, and, and we had great leadership, and Johnny was uh, a major part of that. And we, we played that, that defense uh, uh, and, and it was a little bit of a, a nuance in, in the league because the, the NFL, had, everybody was playing a 4-3 defense. They were all playing man-to-man. You know, or I, I say all, but the majority of it was uh, that style of defensive play. When the American Football League came in, really there were a lot of college coaches that were involved in the, in the new league. So all of a sudden now what we knew in, in college was the, the 3-4 defense, uh, the Oklahoma defense as we called it. So we adapted that defense uh, to, uh, uh, to the four-man, uh, four-man defensive line. And that kind of brought about a, a whole new look as far as defense was concerned. And when we played the, uh, we played the, the, the Vikings that year. Uh, Joe Cap, of course, was the quarterback, running quarterback, but he, he was a, a bootleg quarterback, loved to run bootleg. So we said, hey, we'll just, we'll just uh, throw a defensive end up in his face every time and let the other guys catch him. And we did. And, uh, and it, it, as it turned out, uh, uh, we, we beat up Joe pretty good, and uh, they, were, they were a great team. There's no question about it. And uh, we just uh, we, we got in the right place at the right time that day, and uh, uh, and uh, it all paid off, and we were able to win that game. Hey, one, one last thing, uh, Tom. i kind of run out of time here, but if, if Johnny does win the vote in February and he goes into the hall, as you pointed out, he'll be the sixth chief from that defense. And uh, not too long ago, uh, Bud Grant, the Vikings coach uh, uh, in that fourth Super Bowl, said, quote, the more Hall of Famers they get, the less of an upset it is. Was that, <laughs> was that win an upset, or had the AFL really reached parity with the NFL? As it appeared. Yeah, no, I, I, I think at that time, you know, now if, if you put it in the historical uh, perspective, uh, it was the 10th year of the league. You know, in our, in our Super Bowl ring, uh, Lamar designed it with a, a big stone in the middle and then 10 small stones around the outside. It was perfect timing. But, uh, but you know, we matured uh, in, in that 10 year period. Now, the Vikings were in their 10th year as well, as were the Cowboys. In other words, we were. All three of those teams, those two uh, National League teams, obviously, and then us. But, uh, but we had matured, and, and they had matured as well. But uh, I think that was, uh, that was a big part of it. I think people kind of maybe overlooked us a little bit because, you know, eh, they didn't win against Green Bay and, you know, all those little things. And, you know, the, the one thing about it, as tough a league as, as we had, we had to play Oakland twice a year, you know. Right. <laughs> and that, that was no piece of cake either. So uh, we, were, we, we were tough enough to play. And, and then in that playoff, we had to play Oakland again, and we had to play the Jets. You know, we had to play Namath, and, and we beat him up there. So it was, uh, it, was, it was a great run for us. Tom, thanks so much for the time, and thanks for the memories. Really enjoyed it. Well, I hope Johnny gets there because he's certainly deserving, and he's a, he was a great, great player for us. Thanks, Tom. We'll see you in Canton, Tom. Okay, thank you much. Appreciate Bye. it. You got it. Bye. That was former defensive line coach Tom Pratt. Up next, the two-minute drill. This is Talk of Fame Network.
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, no Rick Goslin in the house, but we do have referee Walt Anderson to blow the whistle. Not on the Patriots this time, but on this segment. That's the two-minute warning. Hey, thanks, Walt. Yeah, that means it's time for the two-minute drill. Ron, you and I are solo today, so let's get going. Here we go. Uh, Vegas Sportsbooks report that there are more bets on the Browns to win the AFC North than the Steelers, Ravens, and Bengals combined. Has Believe Land moved to Vegas? No, to Sucker Land. To quote Rudy Giuliani, truth isn't truth. <laughs> and the Browns ain't real. Uh, Andrew Luck was six and f- <laughs> six for thirteen for fifty yards, and he threw a pick Monday night against Baltimore, and concluded, "I'm very, very encouraged." About what? His paycheck. <laughs> Wish I could say the same. Uh, he also said he was happy that Terrell Suggs sacked him on his surgically repaired right shoulder. How do you think your friend Jimmy Ursay felt about that, Clark? How do I think Jimmy Ursay felt? With his fingers. <laughs> A week after skewering nearly every NFL quarterback with his assessments of them, Jaguar quarterback Jalen Ramsey says he's not talking. Week or a week too late? Week. More stupid comments like this will get him another week off in August. ESPN says it won't televise the anthem this year. Is that week or a year too late? It's years too late, but it should have started by not televising first take. <laughs> Eagles defensive back Malcolm Jenkins continues to demonstrate during the anthem, yet says, quote, I want the conversation to be about the issues, not the anthem. Doesn't he get that the anthem is the issue for a lot of fans? Nope. Fans don't understand, Ron, and now neither do the players. (laughs) Broncos coach Vance Joseph says the new helmet rule is really gray. What color will it be by the end of the season? Purple haze. (laughs) Speaking of purple haze, Viking coach Mike Zimmer says the new helmet rule is going to cost people their jobs. Did he mean coaches, players, or officials? Everyone but officials, Ron. They're like Supreme Court justices named for life. Old friend Mike Pereira says the helmet rule won't be an issue this season. Is he vaping, or does he know something the coaches don't? I'm not sure, but they do know this. He's wrong. That's the end of the That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We're going to dissect the NFL helmet rule and sit down with NFL historian John Turney, as well as Hall of Fame voter Dan Pompey in the second half of the show, with John giving us his take on this week's contributor meeting. So don't go away. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark in Canton, Ohio, along with Ron and new Rick. He's off for the week. And we're going to hear more about seniors and contributors when we talk to NFL historian John Turney in this hour. And we're going to check in with Hall of Fame voter Dan Pompey on his Doug Peterson biography, which just hit the stores this week and is getting a lot of great reviews. But first, Ron, I want to get your take on what ESPN is doing with the National Anthem on Monday Night Football. And what they're doing is they're not televising it. 
You like it or you loathe it? I do like it. Look, uh, you know, for many years people forgot they didn't show the anthem on on television. For many years, they didn't even play. Yeah, right. Uh, so, right. Uh, you know, to me, what's the point? Unless Ray Charles or Whitney Houston is singing the song. I mean, do I really need to hear a twit like Justin Timberlake warbling it out, or some country <laughs> singer I've never heard of? He's like, so who the hell's that guy? You know, how about Roseanne? Yeah, or some guy like he's a plumber by day and an opera singer at night. Uh, I also think it loses power when you're just doing it every single game. You know, I mean, I mean, if you look at the stands, half the people are in the beer line, and and if you're home, half the people are on Twitter. So uh, I say save it for the big moments, uh, the big games, and make it special when you do show it. You're not going to hear me say this very often, Ron. I yeah. agree with you 100%. Wow, let me sit save down. It for the, <laughs> save it for the non-sporting events of significance. I mean, you're right. It just... It's just way overused, and I never understood why we really had to watch it anyway, or frankly, why they play it before every sporting event. But um, now, of course, it's just another opportunity for the media to count who's standing, who's not, who's in the right. tunnel, who's in the locker room, who's saluting, who's raising fists. I think you get the idea. I, frankly, I wish they and, and our esteemed president would simply just leave it alone. Let the players, the teams, and the league just sort this thing out. No, you're exactly right. I mean, you think Donald Trump is watching the, the, the televised version of the anthem in the Oval Office? I think not. He's on Twitter <laughs> whacking some poor employee and telling him he did a lousy job. So uh, I think we could do with a little less anthem time. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you 100%. Just as the, um, you know, sort of the overexposure of it because it, it loses its significance. I, I think it's something special. But when you play it, you know, a, a thousand times a week, no, thanks. Anyway, well, if you're looking to sing along with the National Anthem on Monday Night TV, uh, you're out of luck. Ain't happening, people. But what is happening is more on this week's Contributor Nominations. And you can hear it right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Ron, just guessing, but you probably saw Jalen Ramsey's comments last week about quarterbacks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I did, sadly. Uh, uh, look, I'm glad he's not in personnel, because uh, if he was, he would make Paul DePodesta's days as uh, when he was running the Browns, the glory years in Cleveland. I mean, what is he talking about? <laughs> Well, you know, the thing I didn't get is is two things really here. I mean, A, how a guy who's been in the league two years suddenly turns into Ozzie Newsom as a GM, and, and B, <laughs> why he got such rave reviews. You go on Twitter and people go, oh, this is great. He's such honesty. After calling out quarterbacks like Matt Ryan or Ben Roethlisberger, and he called him decent. Decent? <laughs> he carved up the Jags for 469 yards and five TDs in last year's playoffs. Yeah, they lost, but it wasn't because of Ben Roethlisberger. Or Joe, Joe Flacco called him trash, I think. I mean, uh, they, they all have been somewhere Jason Jalen Ramsey never has, and, and that's a Super Bowl. So right. wake up and smell the coffee, pal. In fact, Flacco and Big Ben, uh, they were Super Bowl MVPs. No, you're right. I mean, he got raised because, uh, I think, because so few players uh, say anything anymore. Even if someone sounds like they're stock raving mad, it's preferable to the pablum we usually get. So people go on the bus. Yeah. Look, on social media, anti-social media, as I call it, you know, this is, this is like... Uh, 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 chum for them. This is like feeding the sharks, you know. Oh, good. Some guy's making a fool of himself. Let's let's tell him it's a great job. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I just, as I said, I was looking on Twitter and went, oh, my God, these people are bending over backwards for this guy. I, I don't get it. But, you know, I think, Ron, I, I'd have a little more respect for the guy if he'd actually done something other than run his mouth. So, you know, I, I get it. He's a decent cornerback. I get to use his terms, you know, decent cornerback. Great. Right. So is Antonio Cromartie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Jalen Ramsey's been in the league two years in the, in the Super Bowl no years. And, and he's got, to me, a lot to learn, and I hope he just got a lesson. Well, I, yeah, you're right, Clark. I mean, he just proved how much he's got to learn. First thing he's got to learn is shut up. If you have yeah, nothing, exactly. You know, uh, somebody else said if you're an idiot, you don't have to open your mouth and prove it, you know. Um, I mean, look, he, he has plenty of time, however, to study tapes. Uh, uh, you know, there, while the Super Bowl is being played, he could sit there and study quarterback tapes because he wasn't playing. Yeah. So uh, Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I just wonder how that went over with Tom Coughlin. I mean, you can imagine Tom Coughlin. I'm looking back going, what the Not heck? great. What's the... <laughs> Oh, not, not great. great. Anyway, not great. Yeah, I thought Eli Manning's reaction was the best when they asked him about it, and he said, "Who? Who? <laughs> they asked about Jalen Ramsey. Said, Who? <laughs> oh, okay, forget Jalen Ramsey. I'd like to. Um, how do you correct this helmet rule, which has gotten really to the point of absurdity and stupidity with some of these recent calls? Um, I, I know the league is having a conference call Wednesday about it, but it doesn't sound like anything's going to change. And, and I and I tell you what, maybe the league's intentions were good with this, Ron, but the execution of it. <laughs> You, I mean, right. changed the entire game. I'm not sure what we're watching anymore, and and I'm certainly not sure what qualifies as a legal hit on a quarterback anymore. Well, I think they made a significant mistake when they took out the words "crown of the helmet" and just said the helmet. Well, when you just say yeah. the helmet, then you know they're calling guys who are hitting each other sideways in the ear holes. I mean, with with dueling ear holes. I mean, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about lowering your head like a billy goat and ramming the crown of your helmet into somebody's noggin. Uh, and I think if they just put that back in, that would help a lot to alleviate at least some of the things that we're seeing. Because I think you're seeing some officials say helmets and helmet. You know, okay, so you you know, you only hit them in the ear flap, but you hit them. Uh, and I, I, I think it's causing a lot of confusion, as you point out, amongst coaches, amongst players, and amongst officials. It's hard to coach something if you don't know what they're going to call, and it's hard to do do it or not do it if you're not sure what the, what the penalty is. So uh, in the end, they may or may not have had good intentions, but it certainly hasn't worked out uh, for the good of the game. So, Ron, congratulations. I'm making you commissioner for the moment. Oh, good. How do you fix this? Uh, well, as I said, I think you just reinsert crown of the helmet back into the rule uh, and eliminate a lot of the gray area. Maybe use a little of your gray matter. That might help, too. Um, uh, but the real problem is you can't take the head out of football. I mean, you can talk all about it all you yeah. want, but you can't yeah. play football right. without... Uh, uh, Using your head. Yeah, without using your head. Look at Jalen Ramsey. He can't even use his head when he's not playing football. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, you covered the Raiders in the 70s. I did. What do you think Jack the Assassin Tatum would have said about this rule? <laughs> well, I can tell you exactly. He wouldn't have said anything. He just would have ignored the rule like he ignored all the other rules. <laughs> just done what he did. Uh, you know, Jack uh, walked to the beat of his own anvil, and he played uh, like a blacksmith, <laughs> you know, striking an anvil. Uh, that hit he put on Sammy White, as you remember, in the Super Bowl, and uh, yep. sent White's helmet flying, and that really ended the damn game before it even barely started. Now, you do that today, there would be officials blowing whistles. It would sound like the gendarmes of the French in the World War II film. You know, you know, those <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know, I mean, they, they, uh, uh, his position would be: if you don't want me to hit a guy with my helmet, then don't give me a helmet. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, listen, as I've said before on the show, I understand what the league is trying to do, and I think you do too. It's trying to make this game yeah. safer. But you don't implement a rule like this, especially worded like this, overnight. Then expect the coaches, players, and officials to know what is legal and what's not. I mean, I've seen enough to know, Ron, that you can call this on basically every play. I mean, yes. you can't. No question. No, you can. You exactly can. That's the real problem. You know, uh, you can call a running back every time he do, every time he comes through the line. They all got their head down. You know, I mean, uh, and I'm not really sure to be honest that this is as much about safety as they want you to believe. Uh, look, they've added a bunch of safety rules and concussions were up 16 percent uh, last season. So I'm not sure uh, what that says beyond the obvious, uh, which is uh, if you want concussions to go down, you really want them to go down. To shrink the players. You know, get them yeah, off right. all the supplements and steroids and PEDs and HGH and endless weight room sessions. Uh, you know, speed times mass. I'm no genius, but I think it equals headaches. So uh, you want to decrease the mass of these guys, deflate the players, not the footballs. Ron, what is it that that renowned philosopher Forrest Gump once told us? Stupid is as stupid does. You know what? I think that pertains to 345 Park Avenue in this rule. Yeah, in this case, you're right, because you have guys who were never football players making decisions about football, and that never ends well. Yep. Well, I hear that sound, and I know that Ron Borges isn't going to lower his head, but he is going to use it, and he's going to lower the boom on something or somebody for this gorgeous or bogus rant. And Ron, who's the lucky target this week? Well, you'll be surprised. Uh, whether or not the Cleveland Browns win a game this season after going 0-16 last year and 1-15 and the year before, they've already performed the most remarkable feat of the year. They are the only team that has left the Vegas sportsbooks exposed. According to a number of Vegas sportsbook managers of my acquaintance, uh, the casino's bets are covered regardless of what happens to 31 of the 32 NFL teams. The wild card? The Brownies. Now, this may sound bogus to you, but it is not. Uh, unless they continue to lose at a record place, then it's not bogus in Vegas. It's another betting bonanza for the house. But as of this moment, Vegas has more bets down on the Browns to win the AFC North than the total amount of bets made on the other three teams in the division, the Steelers, Ravens, and Bengals. Cleveland is now 8-1 to one to win the division, 20-1 to one to win the AFC, and 60-1 to one to win the Super Bowl. But the money keeps coming in. Somebody knows something about something. Either that or the smart money is very stupid. Have gamblers taken too many hard knocks this summer watching Hard Knocks Browns edition on HBO? I don't know, uh, but I, when I see it, I see head coach Hugh Jackson with a retread quarterback and Tyrod Taylor and a midget backup with number one pick Baker Mayfield. He has a core of receivers who seem more in need of a psychologist than an offensive coordinator. Josh Gordon can't stay straight. Des Bryant can't decide if he wants to play in Cleveland. And they haven't had a first-round draft pick last the full length of his rookie contract in a decade. Other than that, there's nothing bogus about the Browns. While Hugh Jackson's team is yet to make its uh, NFL peers nervous, it does have Vegas sweating, though, because if Cleveland turns into Believe Land as the Browns hope and the gamblers seem to think it's possible, they'll break the bank in Vegas instead of breaking hearts in the dog pound. Do I believe in the Browns enough to join the crowd and put my money on them? Seems like a bogus idea to me. Okay, Ron. Last week, on this very segment, we had Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Goslin, who's not with us today, tell us that the teams that are featured on Hard Knocks don't go anywhere. They're doomed. They, they are doomed. <laughs> right, doomed. So who are you taking? Whom are you believing? Dr. Data or Vegas? I love Dr. Data like a brother. But brother... I never bet against Vegas. <laughs> you know, <that's> Vegas. <laughs> you know, those guys usually know what they're doing, and they're you know they're sweating this one. So I think the Browns may be uh, realer than we think, but not real enough for well, me to thank bet. Thank you. 
Thank you, Ron, for that betting tip. I'm going to go put my money on the Steelers. <laughs> we're going to take a break here, but when we get back, we're going to be talking to John Turney, Pro Football Journal. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, with this week devoted to the senior contributor elections, we thought we'd bring in someone who knows a lot about both categories, and that's NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal. John, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome back. Appreciate it. My pleasure. John, uh, I am in Canton for the contributor election, but I want to go back a week and revisit the senior election. And uh, we're going to start this whole segment with Johnny Robinson. I I know you're a fan, and you wrote last week in a story that we carried on our website, TalkTheFameNetwork.com, that you believe he'll be an easy sell to the board in February. Why? Well, because in my view, he should have been in a long time ago. It perplexes me to understand why he he didn't get in in the 1980s or the 1990s even. I suspect and believe that it was part of the battle days of what was going on. There was some rivalry going on between the NFL writers and the AFL writers, and it didn't take very many no votes to block qualified players. So in that way, it's kind of sad. Uh, Mr. Robinson should have been able to enjoy the fruits of his Hall of Fame status for, for many, many years, and he hasn't. Not only that, him getting in now kind of blocks other guys that are have been waiting less long, if, if you know what I mean. I mean, if you put in a guy now that should have been in, then other guys are getting skipped over now, which is why I'm really happy with how the, the committee is these days. You give the seniors committee the, the benefit of the doubt, and I think there's only been a couple guys have been rejected. And because of that, Robinson, who's eminently qualified, should sail in. Anybody that votes against him really ought to have their head examined. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and um, John, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. But I think any time one candidate is proposed by the senior committee, I think he's always gotten in. With two, there have been times when one of them has been kicked back. But just to also explain that to our listeners, when the senior committee recommends a candidate, and the same goes for the contributor committee this week, but he's not automatically elected. He's not elected. He's simply proposed as a candidate. And that nominee then has to be chosen by the 48 selectors when they meet in February, which is the day before for the Super Bowl. Um, okay, now, with Jerry Kramer and Johnny Robinson elected the past two years, I want to ask you, John, because you are a historian of this league and you know uh, a lot of players and a lot about them, um, who, in your mind, is the next most worthy senior or seniors, since we have two coming out in 2020? So who are the next two you would fast forward? Well, I really feel like I've been patient with, with one of them who was almost got in. He was in the final 10 in 2003, and then in 2008 he was close as well, which is Randy Gratishar. And I mm-hmm. think he fits in the trend which the committee has been uh, bringing players out, players that didn't maybe play 12 to 15 years but were uh, what I call a high-peak player, like Kenny Ailey, right. who was a defensive player of the year, or Robert Brazil, who was a five-time All-Pro. Well, Randy Gratishar has got those five All-Pros. He was a defensive player of the year. He also got votes for defensive player of the year in three other seasons. So this is a high-quality, high-quality high, high, you know, high quality player, 
and you have to remember, and this is nothing against the, the Oilers, they were a great defense, but the Orange Crush defense outpaced them in every category, and they have nobody in the Hall of Fame, whereas that Oilers defense from the late 70s have three guys in. That's almost as many as the Steel Curtain. So I think it may be time for Gratishar. The other one I would hope would be somebody like a Chuck Howley, who didn't right. get an all-decade selection, but he was a absolutely solid player, all-around player. I think in, in a lot of ways he was maybe even superior to guys like Chris Hamburger, who recently got in, and Dave Robinson, who recently got in. So I think these are high-quality players that are two that I could name. And then there's some old-timers, like an Al Wistert or an Ox Emerson. So those are some, some names that I, I would love to see get in in the next four to six years. Or, or Duke Slater, when you're talking about old-timers as well. Absolutely, right. Agree. Where do you stand on, um, speaking of the Cowboys, mentioned Chuck Holly, where do you stand on Drew Pearson? Because he's a guy that we've sort of been pushing simply because he's a first-team all-decade wide receiver who hasn't gotten a sniff. He's never been a finalist. He hasn't been discussed, and I don't understand that. I'm just sort of wondering how you feel about him. Well, I'm, I'm with you guys on that one because I think the case was settled when Lynn Swan got in. Lynn Swan did not have the great numbers, but he did have the championships. But the case was made by Dr. Z and others that do you want quality or quantity? And mm-hmm. Lynn Swan was the guy who made the best plays in the biggest games in the most crucial situations. Well, if that applies to, to Lynn Swan, then it has to apply to Drew Pearson as well because he was basically the NFC's version of that over a eight, nine-year period. Yeah, and I think also the case was made, honestly, with Terrell Owens, our favorite whipping boy here, but Terrell Owens this year, because unlike Terrell Owens, Drew Pearson was a first-team all-decade choice. Unlike Terrell Owens, he won a Super Bowl, and he made big catches like Terrell Owens. So um, I look at Drew Pearson and go, what, what did this guy do wrong? And what he did wrong was he just was on the shelf for too long so that people forgot him. I think that's right. Um and he, he he was only part of one championship, but he still played in two other Super Bowls. And people need to remember, those were close games. It's it's not like Dallas got blown out or anything. I mean, it could have gone the other way. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, since I'm in Canton and we've got the contributor nominations this week, um, I want to ask about him because there's a feeling, and I'm not speaking, I'll make sure you understand this, I'm not speaking for the group because I'm one of five people here, so there'll be four of the votes, but there's sort of a feeling in general um, that Pat Bowen, Denver owner Pat Bowen, is uh, an almost automatic choice for one of those two contributor nominations. You good with that? Oh, I'm good with it. Uh, I think that's probably kind of how this was set up, if you really want my frank opinion. Starting in about 2004 or 5, I can't remember the exact year, but the NFL started pouring a lot of money into the Hall of Fame, and rightfully so. The Hall of Fame needed the money. They needed to make that a showcase kind of place. And part of that money came attached with uh, memberships or sitting on certain boards. And Pat Bowen was on a board. Jimmy, uh, Jerry Jones was on a board. I'm sure Edward DeBartolo would have been on a board if he were still in the game. So in a sense, to be honest with you, I think this is a little bit of a quid pro quo. That's not to say mm-hmm. these aren't great owners. They've all been successful. But I have a hard time getting super excited over them because when they say, 
this guy served on that committee or this committee. Right. I say, well, is that a Hall of Fame thing or is that a Chamber of Commerce Hall of Fame thing? That, that's just being a good businessman. I would prefer to see guys like George Young, um, Gil Brandt, Bucko, Bucko mm-hmm. Kilroy, Dick Steinberg, those kind of guys in. But the lay of the land is, is you're going to have to put in some owners probably every other year. Robert Kraft, I'm suspecting, will go in two years from now. That's just part of what's, what's going on with the Hall in my opinion. How about, how about Bud Adams? Well, there's Bud Adams and um, Art I mean, Modell. The unfortunate thing is, yeah, sure. I mean, the, well, Art Modell gets killed every year by the Cleveland people inside that room. But um, the, the, <laughs> the sad thing with Bud Adams is that, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in that room. And I'm not talking about the uh, contributor committee, but in the general 48-person uh, uh, selective board that go, Bud Adams, uh uh, what, what again did he do? <laughs> I mean, there, there wouldn't have been an AFL without him. And, and so I look at Bud Adams, and he's a guy that I think is going to be sort of on, on the long list waiting to get in. I'm not sure he ever gets in. I think you're right about Robert Kraft. I think he'll be in sooner rather than later. But um, because we're choosing two this week, I want to get to that second first. Let's just assume, for argument's sake, that Pat Bowen's one of the two. Let's just assume that. And I think it's a fairly safe choice. Um, who would you choose as a second? I mean, you, you mentioned several guys. You mentioned Bucko, George Young, uh, Gil Brandt. Who would your second choice be if your first choice is going to be Pat Bowen? Well, if it were me, and of course I'm not qualified to be a voter and will never be one, but I would have to go with George Young because I believe he has something at least that's tangible you can point to. He's had the success, of course, but he's a five-time NFL Executive of the Year. Uh, the only guy who's won that award more often was Bill Polian. Now, whether that's enough to get him over this time or in, in next year or the year after, it doesn't particularly matter. The, the, the man has passed away, but he almost got in under the old rules. as. Mm-hmm without the contributor category. In other words, he was on the final 15. To me, that says a lot. Um, and maybe when you pass away, you you lose a little bit of your luster. People forget about it. I think maybe that's happened with Carol Rosenblum, for example, right. who was a true pioneer of the game. He took the Dallas Texans franchise and turned it into the world champion Colts and was wonderful to his former players and then actually traded a franchise, one for another. Not the players, traded franchises. I mean, that, talk about an influence on the game. But as we know, Carol Rosenblum had enemies, so he's not yeah. around. But he traded that franchise with Bullet Bob Ursay, so there's an asterisk there. I used to cover the Colts. I guess it's Bob Ursay. Oh, boy, he was a piece of work to cover. Um, uh, I want to ask you about you, you mentioned Bucko. Um, who gets the credit for that, that success in, in Dallas? Um, you've got Gill, you've got Bucko, you've got Tech Schramm. Tech Schramm's already in. And then we've got Bucko and, and uh, Gil Brandt on the list. And, and I was talking to someone today who said, you know, Gil should get a lot of credit for what they did scouting-wise. What do you think? I'm going to give you a third name who I believe was the brains behind all that stuff. It was Ermel Allen. He was back there in the 60s. And I, back in the early 90s, I was in Dallas and was doing research, was able to get back into the records room and was pulling out all sorts of things and saw a lot of the computer printouts that everybody talks about. And it was innovative for the time. But I looked at it in the early 90s and said, well, this is just a bunch of dot matrix printing. So the, Gil Brand gets the, in my opinion, gets the credit for mm-hmm. computerizing and organizing the system that was set up and by Tech Schramm with, with the Rams in the 1940s and 50s. And Eddie Cazell hey John, as well. Got to run. 
Got to run okay. here. But thanks so much for the visit. Talk to you soon, and thanks for the insights. All right. That was John Tierney, Pro Football Journal. Up next, it's Hall of Fame voter and now author Dan Pompey. Here to talk about his brand new book. You listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Park Judge, Nick Goslin, and Ron Borges. All of these voters, Dan Pompey, has been around the Chicago Bears uh, longer than Dick Buskett, and around the NFL uh, longer than George Howard. <laughs> he now covers the league for Bleacher Report and The Athletic and has written the new autobiography of Super Bowl winning Philadelphia Eagles coach Doug Peterson. It's called Fearless. It hit the market this week, and it is a big success, making a lot of headlines. Dan, so glad to have you back. Thanks for returning to our show. My pleasure, but, you know, I think you just made me 100 years old. I did just have a birthday, but I don't think I got that far. You look good. I'll say that much. Well, I know you're younger well preserved, than Ron and I. Exactly. So what does that make us? <laughs> Dan, this this book is really it's, it's something I'd expect from a, a writer covering the Eagles or a writer around Philadelphia. But you live in Chicago, so how did you come to partner with Doug? And and was the project in the works during last season, or not until after the Super Bowl? No, uh, Clark, it came about uh, after the season uh, when, you know, Doug became a hot commodity. I don't think there probably would have been much interest in doing a book on him had he not done what he had done, uh, because really he came out of nowhere to become uh, recognized as one of the league's greatest coaches. And once the season ended, he had a number of offers to do a book, and it, actually his agent uh, put me and Doug together and uh, thought that I'd be a good guy to do the book, and Doug agreed, and uh, we, uh, we had a really good time doing it. It was a lot of work uh, over a short period of time uh, because of the, uh, you know, the, the window of the offseason being condensed given the Super Bowl and then the fact that uh, you guys know how these books work. They have to be uh, – all the copies do – probably several months before the book comes out. So it was uh, it was a pretty intense couple months, but it ended up being pretty rewarding. Dan, did you know him before, you, before his agent put you two together? Did you know him well? I mean, I'm certainly sure that you came into contact with him down the line, I mean, going to games or doing um, essays or, or features, but did you have an intimate knowledge of him or not? We know we weren't close or anything like that. You know, I, I had obviously uh, seen him around the league for years, and uh, mm-hmm. as you guys know, he had been a longtime backup quarterback who uh, played right up the road from me in Green Bay uh, for many years, eight years in Green Bay as far as backup. And then uh, we had a, a lot of mutual acquaintances, though, who we we did know very well. Uh, the title "Fearless" obviously has a lot of different meanings, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, as you make clear in the book, um, why would you use that word to describe Doug, who's certainly been through a lot? Yeah, I think it's the perfect word to describe him, Ron, because um, it it really captures his leadership style and his game management style. And uh, if he 
did have fear, if he operated with fear, I don't think the Philadelphia Eagles would have won a Super Bowl last year. You know, he did a lot of things that were pretty unconventional. He really came out of nowhere even just to become a head coach. Uh, he was coaching high school. Uh, just a few years ago, and he had one interview to become a head coach, and that was by Jeffrey Lurie. Now, the Eagles knew a little bit about him because they had experience with him when he played in Philadelphia for a year, and he also coached there a little bit before following Andy Reid to Kansas City. Um, But he really uh, developed a coaching style that is pretty unusual, and I think one that probably is going to end up spreading throughout the league. You know, he's a guy who never was afraid to go for it on fourth down. He never was afraid to uh, try a two-point conversion. And uh, it seemed like so many of his gambles paid off last year. Obviously, he had players who who backed him up with great execution, and that's a big part of it. But um, sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of chicken and egg there. When you show confidence in players, uh, even in in backups, as he did, uh, they, they reward you. And when you're fearful, I think sometimes the players uh, are fearful as well, and, and maybe they don't always reward decisions that are made. Well, addressing that point, Dan, I mean, uh, Ron talks about fearless in connection with Doug, but his team certainly seemed fearless against the Patriots in Super Bowl 52. I know you talk about how that came about while Doug Peterson was watching the Jaguars take a knee before halftime in the AFC Championship game in New England. Can you tell us how Doug described his reaction to that and what he learned from that experience? Yeah, he was uh, mortified watching the Jaguars kind of uh, not be aggressive because it was so much against everything that he believes in. And he really thought they needed to be aggressive in that situation against a team that he knew had a lot of offensive firepower and obviously the capacity to come back from any deficit. As uh, Clark and I witnessed sitting next to each other uh, when we saw the Patriots come back against the Falcons, uh, that's still a great memory in my mind that we'll we'll probably both have until our dying days. But, um, you know, I remember looking at you. I actually remember looking at you going, it's over. It's always, let's just back up. It's over. Wait a minute. Uh, but but it really you know it, it was against everything that he believed in and obviously um, he has a completely different philosophy from Doug Marone and he has a different team too different different personnel different quarterbacks and all that but um, he he kind of made he got mad and he said you know if I'm ever in that situation I'm not going to do that and and really you know. They were in a situation in the Super Bowl against the Patriots where the Patriots were coming back strong. You know, that could have been another great Patriots comeback. But Doug Peterson and the Eagles never took their foot off the gas. They just kept charging and charging and charging. And, uh, you know, they went for it on, on fourth and one. Uh, I believe it was in the third quarter, even though, you know, some people said, what are you doing here? Uh, they, they obviously, at the end of the first half, they, they called the Philly special bold play. And, um, you know, I think he attacked the Patriots like he attacks everything, and and that's uh, that, that's part of his philosophy, and it's it's part of why the Eagles are where they are, Super Bowl champions. I got to tell you, as a guy, as you know, has been around the Patriots through all these years. I've always been stunned at the amount of teams that for lack of a better word, roll over for him at the end, you know, and after they get a lead. Like, you really think you're going to sit on a lead and ride it, you know, for – I've seen guys try to do it for half a game. You know, it's crazy. And and, and Doug did the opposite, no question about it. But if I remember right, when the season began or just before the season began, some genius uh, called him the least qualified coach in the NFL. Um, 
what was his reaction to that? Did he care one way or the other? Did he agree <laughs> agree with him, disagree with him? I mean, uh, it, it, it's obviously in retrospect now it looks even more ridiculous. Yeah, he was pretty much taken aback by it, especially because it uh, it came out by right before the season opener against the Washington Redskins. I think it was the day before, two days before, and uh, it ended up being kind of a a distraction that that they didn't need. He also at the time was dealing with the death of his father, uh, so you know, and, and here he is coaching in this this big opening game against the Redskins, and um, you know there were there were stories that came out that. Linked the, the guy who made the comment is the uh, analyst for the Ringer, Mike Lombardi, who also is a longtime NFL executive uh, for the Patriots, Raiders, Browns, 49ers, many teams, and uh, Eagles too. Uh, Eagles too. Yeah, Eagles, right? Yeah, is a guy with with you know who people listen to when he talks because he's got the credibility of a guy who's been in, in an NFL front office and uh, he's been around some uh, some really smart people like Bill Belichick and Bill Walsh. Uh, so, you know, he was taken aback by it. And then the other problem was it, it kind of became a, a backstory that uh, Lombardi had worked with Jim Schwartz, the Eagles defensive coordinator. And people started saying, well, is Jim Schwartz feeding Mike Lombardi this? And, you know, now it becomes, well, can this be a divisive issue on the eve of the, the season? So, uh I think, you know, it ended up passing really quickly. The Eagles won that game, and I think Doug handled it pretty well. Jim Schwartz handled it pretty well, and uh, and they put the fire out and moved on. Uh, so it, it, ended, it ended up being not a big deal, but uh, it was an interesting part of the season and how it began. Hey, Dan, we had Sal Palantonio on here last week, and he was talking about the Carson Wentz injury and how devastating it was and how he went down to the locker room to see what was going on, and he knew immediately he was gone for the season. And his initial reaction, he said, was, that's it. Season's over. That's it. They're they're done. What was Doug Peterson's reaction, and, and how did he overcome that? I mean, it certainly looked to everyone, including Ron and me, like, that's it, you know. Um, It's going to be the Patriots again because – the Eagles aren't even going to get out of the NFC, and yet they did, and they won a Super Bowl with a backup quarterback. Yeah, he tells a great story about that in the book where he said, uh, you know, the, the truth is he was crushed just like everyone else was. And uh, that, then he walked into the team meeting on Tuesday uh, for the first time to really announce that, that Carson was out for the season. Uh, and he walked in, not with his head down, but with all kinds of energy and juice. And he told them, get your heads out of your rear ends. You're still a good football team. And, uh, you know, he gave kind of an inspirational speech. And he came up with this uh, slogan, one man can make a difference, but a team can make a miracle. And it kind of became a rallying cry. And there was a backstory on that, too, where um, the, the, the slogan actually uh, was on a picture in his basement that he had taken with Brett Favre and Tim McGraw. And it was on a wall in back of them, and he never knew it was there. And the day before this speech, his son pointed it out to him, just, you know, randomly, didn't really think anything about it. And then this, this slogan, one man can make a difference, but a team can make a miracle, uh, really, I think, uh, resonated with his team. And, you know, they did overcome the loss of Wentz, obviously, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, his team had loss after loss after loss. They lost their left tackle, Jason Peters. They lost... Darren Sproles, they lost uh, Chris Maragos, Jordan Hicks, their starting middle linebacker. Beginning of the season, people forget they lost Caleb Sturgis, their starting kicker. 
So really, you know, what they did in a lot of ways was, was really unusual because, uh, you know, you, you could you could probably I, I don't know if it's ever happened in NFL history where you've had that kind of uh, that number of losses of important players, including a quarterback who might have been on his way to, uh, you know, maybe if not MVP, second in the MVP voting and then still go and win a Super Bowl. Well, Dan, I just want to get away from your book for one second because you were out in Canton last week with me at the uh, senior committee meeting. I just wanted to get uh, your sort of quick reflections on uh, what that, how you felt about that meeting, 23 candidates, many votes, uh, many hanging chads before we finally got to Johnny Robinson. Um, what, uh, what were your feelings on, on you know, just the whole thing you know, went? Yeah, I, I saw that uh, Goose, he actually told me, too, that he thought it was the best meeting, senior meeting that he'd ever been a part of. And it was a very good meeting. But it also was the most torturous meeting I think I've ever been a part of because I know you agree with me, Ron, that there were so many good candidates, so many qualified guys. Right. And when you're dealing with 23 candidates, it becomes really difficult uh, to separate them. Normally we have 15 finalists, but there were – a number of ties, so we ended up with 23. And uh, the pool is just so strong. And, you know, I, I think we ended up with an outstanding guy who really checks all the boxes in Johnny Robinson. I mean, you're talking about a guy with uh, great production on the ball. You're talking about a guy with great honors and a guy who played on great teams and was the only member of the all-decade team of the 60s who had not yet been inducted in the Hall of Fame. So, very happy about that, but I'm, I'm not as happy about some of the guys we left on the cutting room floor. And, uh, you know, really looking forward to getting another shot at getting in some of those guys down the line. Hey, Dan, we were very happy to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with the book. Okay, my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Stay fearless. You got it. <laughs> okay. That was Dan Pompey, whose new book, Fearless, hits the stores this week. I don't get it. Great book. Up next, the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir. It's a two-minute drill with Ron and I carrying the load today. Ron, next man up. So take it away. Got an idea for the helmet to the head problems. How about helmet cams? If they're broken, it's no good. What do you say? Better idea. How about kneel cam for anthems? <laughs> After all the effort to take headshots out of pro football, concussions were up 16% last year. Better reporting or hopeless case? Both. Linebacker Clay Matthews is entering the final year of his contract in his 10th season with the Packers. He says he wants to stay in Green Bay. What will he have to do to make that happen? Turn down the music when he rooms next to Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Rookie quarterback Lamar Jackson says he started 0 for 4 in his last exhibition game because his arm got cold waiting for Joe Flacco to get done playing. Should that make Flacco hot? Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. His arm got cold in August? <laughs> Remember... Truth isn't truth. <laughs> Adrian Peterson found a new team in Washington. Did the Redskins find a runner or a relic? A relic, but at a fire sale price. <laughs> John Elway says Colin Kaepernick had his chance to be a Bronco. Do the Broncos have a chance with the quarterbacks Elway did sign? If Elway signs himself, yes. 
Should the Jets trade Teddy Bridgewater? Yes, sir. Teddy Turnpike doesn't resonate like Broadway Joe. <laughs> Would you trade for Teddy Bridgewater? No, not unless I could get Simon and Garfunkel with him. Bridge over Teddy Bridgewater, uh, trouble, clever, Bridgewater over troubled waters. Yeah. Clever, clever guy. Some folks listen to books on tape while commuting. Philip Rivers watches game tape on his 90-minute commute between San Diego and L.A. Wouldn't that make you carsick? Only if it's a tape of the Browns' last game, Ron. <laughs> Ready coach John Gruden denied making $10 million a season, then said he never thought Tom Cruise's movies were any good, but he makes plenty of money. Was he knocking Tom Cruise or himself? Not sure, but I do know this. If the Raiders gave Gruden a $100 million deal, he'd be a majority owner. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Tom Pratt, Dan Pompey, and John Turney for joining us. Jay Raptors for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to listen to this or any broadcast, just to just go to our website, Talk of Fame Network, or look for us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, you can find us next week right here at this station and at this time. We'll be here, and we hope you will be, too.